you want to turn to 1 Corinthians 2, we're going to be there today. Um, I imagine all of you have had the experience of being an, an insider on some topic or group or hobby or activity, and perhaps also have the experience of know what it's like to be an outsider to something and not really get it. So, for example, over the last few years, I've gotten really into baseball, um, in increasingly each year. And this year, I've followed spring training quite a bit. Now that the season is going, I, I look through all the, the, uh, the stat lines, the, uh, the box scores of every game. Sometimes I look at, like, every single pitch I'm like for an inning. I, I want to know how all the players are doing. I keep up on the individual stats and the team stats. I listen to Mariners games on the radio. I find baseball super interesting, but I also know, because I haven't always, from an outsider's perspective, baseball is really boring, <laughs> right? Three-hour-plus games, 162 of them a year. Like, you have 18 football games, you have 162 baseball games, and they're pretty slow-moving most of the time, so I get it. Um, similarly, most of you, many of you know that I'm into birding, uh, now, some of you are like, oh, what, is, what even is that? Um, <laughs> but I've brought up birding and my adventures birding to enough people and gotten blank, bewildered stares that I know that it's hard for a lot of people to imagine, like, how could you find that exciting or interesting? I get it. There's a lot of things that I'm an outsider to. Um, some of you read romance novels. I... I, I Jason, you laughed a little too loud there. <laughs> <laughs> I don't get it. Um, I think uh, the idea of surfing, no desire. But I, I know, I'm sure it's really exciting. Um, some of you are into hockey, and you know that we have a hockey team. I'm into hockey. Like, similarly with baseball, like I'm an outsider to that. I look and like, it doesn't hold any interest to me. But I, I know it can be exciting. Now, I bring this all up because... This concept of outsider-insider has some similarities and some differences with what we're looking at in 1 Corinthians so far. And that is that there are those who see the wisdom and the power of God in the gospel, this message of Christ and Him crucified for sins, and they see that and they hear that and their lives are radically changed because of it. And they, they live their lives not for themselves, but for God, because of what he's done. And then there are those who find this message to be foolish, silly, insignificant, perhaps even offensive. And they cannot understand how anyone would not only believe this, but radically upend their life because of this message. Now, to be clear, there are some limits to this analogy. As we'll see, becoming an insider to the gospel requires more than just taking an interest in it, gaining information, merely just having a spiritual or religious temperament. Furthermore, the issue of whether you confess Jesus as Lord or reject Jesus as Lord is not at all on the same level as what you choose as your hobbies and give your time to. Um, this is of utmost importance has significant and eternal effects. 
In the end, it is the only insider-outsider issue that matters. And so we're going to consider what it is to become and to be an insider, if you will, to God's wisdom and power in the gospel. Um, we've been looking into this in the last few weeks. We continue on this larger topic, but we get into some new stuff today as well. So we're in chapter 2 of 1 Corinthians. We're going to go all the way through it. We spent five weeks on 1 Corinthians 1. We're going all the way through chapter 2. It's a little bit shorter, though, 16 verses. Okay, so we'll start with the first five verses, um, and this will give us a chance to kind of get up to speed on where we've been, on where the argument, the, this message, this letter is at this point. Okay, so Paul writes, And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power. So that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the, in the power of God. So Paul brings up to the Corinthians' attention, his ministry among them, that he came and shared the gospel with them, and he says his purpose was not to convince them with using lofty speech or wisdom, with human eloquence, with great charisma and persuasiveness, but merely by pointing to the gospel, Christ and him crucified, by proclaiming this message and expounding on this message. And what is so shocking about this, and why Paul is spending so much ink on this topic, is that God's way of working is so radically different than the world's way of working. When the world thinks of power, the world thinks of power, they think of impressiveness and confident and eloquent and charismatic leaders. They think of entertainment and putting on a show of smooth words and eloquent arguments. When God thinks of power, he presents Christ and him crucified. God calls and saves and changes people through this message that seems foolish and weak and offensive to the world. And in the case of Paul and many others, through preachers and through individuals that seem foolish and weak and come in much trembling and feel insufficient, and God does this very purposefully, as Paul has been saying. Uh, God works this way so that it will be very clear that it is God and his power at work and not the eloquence and, and greatness and impressiveness or wisdom of any man or woman. It sounds crazy to much of our thinking in the world, but God's purpose is actually to humble all human pride, human self-reliance, human self-boasting, and to direct all boasting and reliance and trust and confidence and satisfaction and joy to be found in him and him alone. Like, and that works so radically against much of the way that our world and our hearts work. And so one quick application of this that we've considered in part over the last few weeks, when we think about churches and ministry and, and the role of Christians in society, 
The goal is not to match the impressiveness and the entertainment value of other kinds of gatherings or groups, whether concerts or comedy shows or political rallies or TED Talks or Disneyland. That's not what we're attempting. There are many ways to gather people together and get them in a group and get them riled up and excited. It's actually not that hard to do. But does it give glory to God for doing something that only God can do? Or does it give glory to man? And the gospel proclaims that man, that you and I, are utterly helpless and lost and dead because of sin and unable to do anything about that on our own. The gospel proclaims that only God's work for us in Jesus is sufficient. Only the sacrificial death of Jesus in our place for our sins and our clinging to that in humble faith is sufficient. And as this message is proclaimed, and as God's spirit works, and as people respond in faith, then people, like God's power is seen, is manifested. People are changed and saved for eternity. Paul says there in verse 5, in or in verse 4, in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. And what he's getting at is the change that comes in people's lives as they respond to the gospel, where they go from living for themselves and loving themselves to living for God. Only the gospel does that. No mere human words, no matter how impressive or wise, can do that. Now, as Paul goes on, he's going to peel back the layers on this a bit and show how this works. Starting at verse 6, he says, Yet among the mature we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. So Paul says that there is a wisdom. There is a wisdom of God that is, in, that is very different from the wisdom of this age, the wisdom arrived at by mere human efforts, the wisdom of philosophy and science and human religion. There is a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. So in other words, there is this grand plan and purpose of God that he's been bringing about from before time again. All of history has been moving in a certain direction under the sovereign hand of God. It is moving under his wisdom, under his purposefulness. Nothing has been meaningless. Nothing has been out of control, chaotic, or vain. The wisdom of God has been over all of history. Elsewhere, we are told that God is working all things according to the counsel of his will. The book of Proverbs tells us that many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of God, the purpose of the Lord that will stand. So we see this grand picture of a big God sovereignly working over all of history. Now, look at what Paul says about this next. He says that the rulers of this age prove that they don't get it, that they don't see the wisdom of God. And how do they prove that? By their killing of Jesus. 
Now, this is interesting on a couple different levels. For one, it means that Jesus, his life, death, and resurrection, is at the very center of God's plans, the center of God's purposes of this secret and hidden wisdom of God. God's plan is absolutely dependent on the life and death, the person and work of Jesus. And so if we reject Jesus, if we reject the gospel, we reject God and all of his wisdom. But secondly, even in these rulers of that day, even in their failing to understand who Jesus was and thereby killing him, they were in fact bringing to fruition God's purposes. They didn't understand it, but they were. Jesus' death wasn't plan B. It wasn't catching God off guard and it wasn't an accident of history. It was exactly according to plan. And so, significantly, Paul, immediately after he says they have crucified the Lord of glory, moves on to describe how this indeed opened up and revealed the wisdom of God. So look at verse 9. He just said, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory, but as it is written, what no eye has seen nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him, these things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. So, first of all, notice that something has been revealed. So, this secret, this hidden wisdom of God, the thing that no eye has seen, no ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, is not, is no longer such, is no longer hidden, is no longer secret, at least not universally. Paul says these things God has revealed to us. And he's revealed them to us because Jesus has come. So notice that the subject matter here is still the same. God's glorious purposes over all humanity culminating in, centered on Christ and him crucified. The secret's been revealed. God's purposes have been made known because Christ has come. Um, as we sing in another song, all, uh, we sing about the cross of Christ, all the light of sacred story gathers round its head sublime. All of the, the gloriousness of God's story that he's been working from the beginning of time gathers round the cross and is seen in all of its fullness and vividness and power there. So if you want to see the wisdom and power of God, look at the cross. And look at what God accomplished there. This is what Paul in fact, says he did among the Corinthians, right? I, I decided to know nothing among you. Like, I, I didn't go back into the, like, all of the things that I could talk to you about, all of, you know, my arguments and impressiveness. I decided to know nothing among you except Christ and him crucified. It doesn't mean there's nothing else to talk about. It doesn't mean there's no other parts of the Christian life to talk about. But he came to make known, first and foremost, Christ and him crucified. 
But not only are we told that something has been revealed, we're also told how. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. We have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. Now, when we come across the the Spirit in Scripture, our minds can kind of jump to conclusions. Oh, this must be about spiritual gifts, about visible manifestations, signs and wonders, or perhaps we think this is about being spiritual in the sense of um, being very open to mystical and emotional and meditative experiences and practices. That's how the word spiritual is most often used in our world. But neither of these is what is going on here. In fact, the subject matter here is really the same. By bringing up the Spirit of God, Paul is continuing to show that God is not using any human means, any human wisdom, any human achievement to draw people to himself. No human religion figures God out and his salvation. No specific way of thinking, no philosophy, no political program, no social program arrives at the gospel. No human created group gets to say, well, we figured it out. Instead, it is revealed by the Spirit. In other words, the ability even to see and understand and then accept the gospel comes from God. Jesus says the same thing to Nicodemus. In John 3, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. He cannot enter the kingdom of God. So going back to the analogy of insider and outsider, seeing the kingdom of God, seeing the wisdom and goodness and glory of God in Jesus and coming to him on faith is dependent on more than just our effort and will although we must give every effort and will. But it is dependent on God's Spirit. God must do a work to open our eyes, to awaken our hearts, to grant us faith. Now, if this weren't clear enough, look at how Paul finishes this section. and We'll unpack this a bit more. The natural person, that in context here is a person without the Spirit, does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. For they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them, because those things, they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges or discerns, it's the same word, judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. And he quotes from Isaiah, for who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him, but we have the mind of Christ. Now, in our day and time, with the way we tend to think, with the priority we place on things like freedom and equality and self-reliance, we tend to object to a statement like this. Because this seems to say that there's no way for the natural person, the person without the Spirit of God, to even understand the things of God. It seems that humanity is forever split into these two groups, those who see it and those who do not, and that is just the case. It is what it is, and it will never change. And if this is the case, why give an ear? 
Why give an ear to the gospel or what God may have to say? Why share the gospel? Why pray for the faith of others? If even the ability to, to see the gospel as true and wise and good is dependent on the Spirit, and only God gives the Spirit, why do anything? But that would be to misunderstand what Paul is getting at here. Paul here, and Jesus in John 3, and elsewhere in Scripture, are not cutting at the root of effort and responsibility and will. They are not discouraging effort and will and faith and action. What they are cutting at the root of is the tree of self-reliance, self-glory, self-sufficiency, and self-boasting. This has been the point all along, and still the point here. God is working all things together so that we might boast in the Lord. Theologian D.A. Carson puts it well. He says, Paul's point then is that the possibility of knowing God and of understanding his ways does not belong to human beings, to any human being, as an essential component of his or her being. The distance is too great. Our obtuseness, our deep self-centeredness, our love of pomp and power and prestige simply would not have allowed us to understand the cross or our need of it. In short, our very lostness demanded the work of the Spirit of God to the end that we might understand what God has freely given us. And if you talk to people who have gone from finding Jesus and the gospel to be foolish and unimpressive and insignificant to finding their life in it and to living for God because of it, you hear their experience backing up what Carson just said, right? They were not out looking for God. It was not that they had such a temperament and such a moral compass and such a natural desire that they just went looking for God. I doubt that's your story. God found you and did a change in you where your desires were radically changed and you were willing to submit yourself and let your life be radically changed by God. Now, at the same time, it is certainly not the case that there's nothing we can do to see and behold and come to and cling to God in Christ. I mean, we only have to look at the Apostle Paul. He's just told us that he went to the Corinthians. We know Paul went to the Corinthians, traveled many, many miles, many, many years, spent many months among the Corinthians, and pleaded with them to believe and shared the gospel with them. He certainly didn't say, well, yeah, guess there's nothing I can do. I just have to trust God's Spirit to work. No. There were things he must do, and there were things we must do. We can hear and, and give an ear to the gospel and as an act of our will, repent of our sinful rebellion and cast ourselves on him as our only hope. If we are Christians already, we can and must continue to proclaim the gospel to others, call them to faith. We are responsible for doing these things. But in the end, the Spirit of God must work. And we can't credit ourselves for any change in our lives, any faith in our lives. We can't credit ourselves for producing faith and change in anyone else. As Paul's going to put it in the next chapter, we sow seeds. Paul says, I 
sowed seeds. Apollos came in and watered those seeds. But God is only the one who can cause any growth. And if we find this hard to swallow or offensive, could it be? Could it be that we find it offensive and hard to swallow because it cuts at the root of our self-reliance, of our self-sufficiency, and our pride? Could it be that the parts of us that objects to God working in this way is our sinful determination to rule our own lives, trust in ourselves, and want to believe that we have within ourselves everything we need. We have within ourselves the ability and desire to come to God and to do what is right on our own, and we don't really need God. And isn't this exactly what Paul is saying that God is doing in the gospel? Destroying exactly this thinking. And not just in the message itself, but also in the very means of granting his spirit to reveal the wisdom of God, which appears starkly different than the wisdom of the world, and through this, awakening hearts to behold the glory of God in Jesus. One more time, D.A. Carson says, what we must constantly remember is that this human inability to understand spiritual things is a culpable inability. It is not that God makes us unable to understand him and then toys with us for his own amusement. Rather, he's made us for himself, but we have run from him. The heart of our lostness is our profound self-focus. We do not want to know him if knowing him is on his terms. We are happy to have a God we can more or less manipulate. We do not want a God to whom we admit that we are rebels in heart and mind, that we do not deserve his favor, and that our only hope is in his pardoning and transforming grace. But this is the God that we have. And he is good. And his pardoning and transforming grace is better than anything else. Now, I want to make a connection between what we've seen today and what we've looked at the last few weeks, the connection between the Spirit and the cross. So in these two chapters, Paul has given us a couple ways to, to see a dividing line of all of humanity. In, in chapter 1, it was a view of the cross. There are those who, as, as, as we said at the beginning, there are those who see Christ and Him crucified and hear this message and stake their lives on it and boast in it as the greatest hope and comfort that they've had. And there are those who find it foolish and offensive and shrug their shoulders. Yeah. Here in chapter 2, again, we get another dividing line. There are those with the Spirit who see the wisdom of God and embrace it. And those who, the natural person, who does not have the Spirit and does not see that. Here's the important thing to note. These are one and the same. These groupings, these two lines of division are the same. In other words, those who have the Spirit of God, which is all believers, make much of Christ and find their greatest hope in the gospel. It is not, as it can seem in our world, 
That there are Christians out there who care about Jesus and the gospel, and then there are Christians who care about the Spirit. No, they are to be one and the same. To have the Spirit, as all believers do, is to see the wisdom of God in the cross of Christ and to find your greatest hope and comfort and worth and identity in Him. Jesus himself said about the Spirit and the purpose of the Spirit, He will glorify me. That's what the Spirit does. There's no division between the purposes of the Spirit and the purposes of the Son. They are working towards the same end, and it's the end that Paul gives us at the end of chapter 1 there. So that let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. So a couple applications of this to consider. First of all, if you have not found the gospel to be compelling, to be life-changing, if you feel like an outsider looking into this, peer deeply into it. Do not stop. Look into God's word. Talk to others who mysteriously have found something life-changing in the gospel. And pray. The Bible is full of God's, God calling people to seek him and promising that when they do, he will find them. They will find him. More than that, Jesus says he came to seek and save that which is lost. And so do not stop looking, peering in to the gospel into who God is. No part of God's sovereignty is meant to encourage inaction. We are absolutely dependent on God, on dependent on the Spirit, but we are called to seek, knock, and come. Secondly, a word on how not to apply this. So having eyes to see the wisdom of God in the gospel, so if you would consider yourself as one to be a quote-unquote insider to this, being spiritually discerned, the last thing that should do is make you proud and arrogant. That would work completely against what the very purposes of God in this are, to make you humble and confident in God, not yourself. It should not make us act like insiders who have figured something out on our own and, well, too bad for the rest. This, again, would completely nullify Paul's point here and God's purposes if it were to result in pride. No. Understanding the things of God, seeing what God has prepared for those who love Him, should make us humble, should lead us to worship, should lead us to confident joy in Him. All of what God has done, and this is what Paul is saying throughout this section, every aspect of God's salvation is meant to lead us to make much of God, to put our hope confidently in God, and to despair of putting hope in ourselves apart from God. And so if you find yourself... um, making much of yourself, living selfish lives, continue to look, continue to peer into the gospel.
Now, we're going to proclaim the gospel together in communion. We take communion each week, and this is a way, if you have confessed Jesus as Lord and Savior, this is a way for us to visibly and tangibly remember and celebrate and proclaim the body of, and blood of Jesus given for us. Because we need to remember it. Because we do forget. We do get selfish. And the first and best response to that is to come back and consider what God has done for us in Jesus and where our identity and hope lies. If you have not confessed Jesus as Lord and Savior, we'd encourage you to consider these things diligently, even as we take communion, and one of the pastors, or probably really anyone here, would love to talk with you. So let's pray, and we'll celebrate communion together.